Let's pray uh, as we open this chapter together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you'll just help us now to focus upon it, uh, to think about you, about your son Jesus. We pray that as we examine your word that you will examine our hearts and that by your spirit you'll show us where we need to change. Please strengthen our trust. Uh, Please uh, intensify our submission uh, to Jesus as our Lord and our Saviour. Amen. Um, I want to raise with you some questions that I think are worth asking. And here's the first one. Is life just a trivial pursuit? I mean, you go to school for as long enough until you're able to go out and get a job so that you can buy trivia to fill your house with. Uh, You do that Monday through to Friday and you try and play with it on the weekends and then you do it all again. You you get up, you go to work, you come home, you eat, sleep, play and then you do it over and over and over and over and that's all there is to life. Uh, I think if we were aliens coming into a Western country and landed in a shopping mall, we'd be completely forgiven for thinking that life is just about consumption. All the things that we can gather for ourselves, that's the game. And he who dies with the most toys surely wins. But no, he who dies with the most toys still dies. You don't win in the end. Let me ask a second question with you. Is there a spiritual purpose to life? I think if we slow down and we pause and think long enough, and most people I put into this basket, if we can just step back from this meaningless uh, working to consume and working to consume and working to consume, we think there has to be something more. Surely there's got to be something that's transcendent, something that's real, something that isn't going to be destroyed and made meaningless by death. Surely, perhaps, there's something out there. There's something that would make sense of life. Uh, My wife, who works as a GP here in Port Macquarie, has been asking a question now for over a decade to her patients, and that is, do you have any spiritual beliefs? The vast majority of people say yes. Well, they're not quite sure what they are, but they do believe that there's more to life than just living. They believe that we're more than just molecules. They believe that there has to be a greater power, that we are actually created for some significance and meaning and purpose, even if they're not quite sure what it is. And so I want to raise a third question for you. That is, what kind of a man is Jesus? Now, you might be thinking, how does that third question relate to the first two questions? Is life just a trivial pursuit? And is there a spiritual purpose to life? Let me say that if we come to understand Jesus as he is, he helps us to answer both those questions. And if you are an inquirer, if you're not sure about this whole Christian thing, then you couldn't be in a better place than to have Matthew chapter 8 open and look at what we've got here. And if you're a Christian... You're following Jesus, but you get swept along just by the world. And there are times when you know you wake up and you go to work and you come home and you don't actually give God a thought on that day or perhaps that week or perhaps that month. Then here is a reminder to us to see what God is doing in our world and where Jesus fits with that. And I hope it will be an encouragement to you. 
So let's have a look at this, and I'm not going to recap every verse in this passage, but I want to take you through it fairly quickly to start with. And what we see, I think, in this opening section is Jesus with people who you might consider outsiders. Outsiders to God's people. Outsiders to relationship with God. Outsiders to the way that God has engaged with people over centuries. The first of these is a leper. And the thing about being a leper in the first century is not that much different to being a leper in the 20th century. There are parts of our world where there are still leper colonies. That is, people who are isolated from the rest of their community. And if we've never seen a leper colony, and I haven't for real, I've seen ones that used to be leper colonies, like Robben Island off the coast of Cape Town. But I think if we go back to the very beginnings of the pandemic, and we remember the TV footage of what was going on in northern Italy, and what was going on in New York City, with semi-trailers, refrigerated semi-trailers being brought to the back doors of hospitals to take bodies, where isolation was extreme, then we know something of what it was like to have been a leper in the first century. That is, it's too dangerous to make contact. You have to stay isolated. And yet what we'd see Jesus doing is making contact with a leper from behind a mask and a security screen, passing through a tube. No, none of that. He reaches out and he touches the leper. Now, under normal circumstances, you were signing your own death sentence to do that. And if not a physical death sentence, then a social death sentence. You come into contact with a leper, you now live with the lepers. And yet Jesus is able to reverse that. As he comes into contact with this man who has leprosy, so this man is healed. And we see in Jesus' embrace of this man something of what the king is coming to do in his kingdom. We see also a similar thing in what follows. Jesus comes into contact with a centurion. You know what a centurion is? Somebody commands a hundred. That is, he would have been a, a commander of a hundred people in a Roman legion. He's somebody who wasn't a Jew. He didn't have the Old Testament or the Bible as the people of his day would know it. But here's a man who understands that Jesus can be trusted. He knows that Jesus is capable of commanding things to happen. As he, is, he also is capable in a, in a limited sense in his work. And so he tells Jesus that Jesus only needs to say a word and this man will be healed. Extraordinary. Jesus does this, and Jesus responds to the faith of this man in verse 10, saying, I tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. See, the picture here is of one who doesn't belong to the long lineage that Matthew introduced us to at the start. This is somebody who's not part of the family of Abraham. They've not had the covenant promises of God. They've not been reading through God's word, we presume. And yet they show the right response to Jesus, to put their trust in him. And Jesus responds 
showing his authority over this man's uh, servant's sickness. And the man is healed at that very hour. And then if we're talking about outcasts in society, surely the next person is the most, a mother-in-law. So that's meant to be a joke. A few mother-in-laws chuckle. Um, no, let's have a look at what he says. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on them. Um, we see a fair bit of fever in the Gospels. Jesus coming into contact with someone who had fever. Uh, we've heard a bit about fever again with the disease that's been spreading around about. You know the advice today? Take a Panadol. Take a Panadol. If there's an infection that's causing the fever, take some antibiotics. Get rid of the infection. This is a world without Panadol. This is a world without antibiotics. By the time you had a fever, you were close to death. See, in all these instances, Jesus is demonstrating his power over death. Sickness was a problem because it led to death. But there's more than that. These are people who, in some ways, were restricted from under the Jewish covenant coming into the very presence of God. In the temple, you wouldn't find a leper. In the inner part of the temple, you wouldn't find a centurion or the mother-in-law. And yet Jesus reaches out to them. Now, here we have Jesus in authority over sickness. Um, it's extraordinary what he's able to do. And we need to realise that this isn't some kind of sham in a tent down the road. I know there's a lot of cynicism about healing. Uh, my conviction is that God is a God who heals people. But I know that he heals people in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes it's through medical research, science and clinicians. Sometimes it's through chemical things that happen in the body that make changes that actually destroy foreign objects that are there and bring about changes. Sometimes we just can't see an explanation. The picture that we've got of Jesus is absolutely, absolutely incontrovertible. The, the issue that was floating around in Jesus' day wasn't, were they really healed? It is that often today, isn't it? Sometimes we hear, you know, did it just naturally recover or was it God? And then you get some sham uh, religious people supposedly shifting a leg so one's longer than the other and that brings everything back into balance or something else that can't be proven or disproven. But what Jesus is doing needs to be authorised. That's why he says to this man who's a leper, don't tell them about me, go and show yourself to the priest at the temple. Let this be a matter of public record that the man who was unclean has now been made clean. And when Jesus heals the man and then the woman from fever and from sickness... And then in verse 15, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out spirits with a word and he healed all the sick. You've got an activity that is making a massive impact in Jesus' community. 
Ancient historians speak about that impact. The Bible, in all of the four Gospels, and then in the book of Acts, talk about the impact of what's going on. But interestingly, you can look at Jewish and Greek historians, Roman historians, who make reference to this man being a worker of miracles, a worker of wonders. And what you don't have in the Gospels is people denying that these things happen. They just ask the question, by whose authority and what kind of a man is he that he can do these things? And we'll come to that question. Reading on, verse 18, <coughs> pardon me. When <coughs> I think I'm right now. Yep, thank you. Yep. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Uh, I'm not quite sure what Jesus is getting at there, other than it's not really about the place where he's going to be over the next period of time. Um, it, it's not whether he's headed across the lake or back the other side of the lake or whether he goes into this Gentile region or stays in this Jewish region or, or is in Galilee or another place. That's not really what's going on here. Jesus is headed to another place altogether. And then another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And then Jesus, because he'd done counselling 101, said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What an extraordinary thing to say. It sounds callous, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine going to a funeral and saying, surely there's something better you people can be doing? And yet that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And that something better, and I would take it the only thing better, is follow Jesus. Jesus, I take it, understands that there's an excuse here. This is not callous, meaningless defamation of somebody who's, who's grieving deeply. This is an excuse. Just another way to point Jesus away. And Jesus confronts him for what it is. So we see his authority over sickness. We see his extraordinary authority over people saying, follow me. And then we see his authority over the natural and the spiritual realms. This is an extraordinary event. Verse 23, he gets in the boat with his disciples and without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Now, keep in mind, the people that are with him are actually used to the water. Um, these are sailors, these are fishermen. These are people who go out in boats. They, they know about the sea. If, if they are fearful of drowning, it's probably good reason. I don't know if you um, remember back to the Sydney Hobart yacht race that there was years ago with a where they actually had a hurricane out in the water and, and there were five deaths and boats being absolutely smashed. Um, I'd imagine, at a small scale, there was this kind of terror for the fishermen that were following Jesus. But Jesus is asleep in the boat. 
He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And then he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I don't know if you've ever tried that. Um, Talking to the ocean. I know that a lot of you would not tell it to calm down. A lot of you would say, come on, let's have a bit more swell, please. Um, We'd like to see two, three metres here. Um, We'd like to see some nice tubes. Have you tried it? Speaking to the ocean. Well, Jesus did. And it stopped. And it stops instantly, it seems. And I know a little bit about the ocean. And if the wind and the waves... Um, Sorry, if the wind dies down and the storm dies down, the waves don't just stop, but they do for Jesus. And then finally, in this section, when he arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? It's interesting, here are these uh, men who are possessed by demons and they know the identity of Jesus. So you've just had the question, what kind of a man is this? It's actually the demons that know. What do you want with us, son of God, they say? Have you come to torture us? And some distance from them was a large herd of pigs that was feeding and the demons uh, begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Now, we know, therefore, that the region of the Gadarenes was Gentile territory because Jews didn't herd pigs. Pigs were unclean. Uh, In this Gentile territory, Jesus says to them, go, and they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. And those tending the pigs ran off and went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And then the whole town went out to meet with Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Um, Extraordinary. They've been afraid to go to this place. No one was game to go anywhere near these demon-possessed men. And yet they'd prefer to get rid of Jesus. Friends, we see as we look at this chapter, and I've decided that we'd look at this whole chapter here as we wrap up looking at Matthew for a while, that Jesus has an extraordinary authority in this world. We're getting a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like when the king is active. His authority over sickness and death. His authority over people that he can command people to stop doing other things and follow him. His authority over the natural realm that he can just tell a storm to stop and the sea calms. And his authority over the spiritual realm, the driving out of demons, which he seems to do repeatedly and does here in this place of the dead, the tombs. Let's go back to that question. What kind of a man is Jesus? What do we make of Jesus as we look at this? As we have the opportunity to see Jesus interacting with people, 
What kind of a man is Jesus? Powerful? Absolutely. But not just powerful, deeply compassionate. You see Jesus' authority matched together with his mercy. You see the power of Jesus at work in so many situations, but you see his grace and his tender kindness in the lives of people. Friends, in Jesus, we see the kingdom of God invading our world. In Jesus, we meet the Son of God. In Jesus, we see the transcendent. We see the eternal. We see that life is more than a trivial pursuit. We see that God has stepped into our world to invite us into his world. I want to encourage you, if you're inquiring into these things, to keep asking questions. And the best way to address your questions is to read through Matthew's Gospel. If you finish that and you want another perspective, read any of the other three. They all tell the accounts of Jesus through a different window. They raise questions and they answer those questions. But if you know that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's God's King, be reminded that he's trustworthy. In this chapter, there are two responses. One where the faith of the centurion is commended and one where the faith or the lack of faith of his disciples is critiqued. Jesus is trustworthy. You can bank everything on Jesus. You can completely depend upon him. You can invest everything in Jesus. You can put all your stocks with Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the most secure investment that you will ever make. Put your trust in Jesus and you are entering into life for all eternity. And don't just trust him. Submit to him. Recognise that you're not king in Jesus' kingdom. You're not queen in Jesus' kingdom. No, Jesus is the king in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the one that we submit to. Jesus is the one that we lovingly and willingly submit to because he is the means by which we enter into a relationship with our loving Father who's promised us in the Sermon on the Mount that we just looked at to cover all of our needs. Friends, we live in a world that won't give much encouragement to Christians. If we put our Bibles aside, if we stop meeting together with other believers, if we fail to remind ourselves of the truths that we've come to know, life is going to dissipate into a meaningless bunch of trivial pursuits. Because that's all there is in this world. But if we continue to open our scriptures gather together and remind each other of who Jesus is, that he's the king in God's kingdom, that he's come to save, then we can trust him and willingly submit to him 
and that is at the heart of what life is about. One of the earliest memories that I have of my parents' faith in action was when they were making the decisions about taking our family from Tasmania to Canberra. And we talked about it here and there and there were different things that came up. And I remember my mother saying, well, we just need to trust God and obey him. And on the last service that we went to in Launceston before we moved to Canberra, I can still remember the singing of that song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You only trust one who's trustworthy and you only obey one who has real authority. And in Matthew 8, we see that Jesus has both. Thanks. Thanks.